As you do, I want to invite you to uh, take out a uh, copy of uh, Scripture. Um, if you brought a Bible with you, that's awesome. Uh, go ahead and get that out, and you can open up to the book of Hebrews. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a copy of um, the Bible with you, uh, we got one that you can use. You'll find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Uh, so feel free to grab that, pull that out. If you don't know where Hebrews is, there's a really helpful table of contents that'll get you there. Um, but we are in Hebrews, and uh, we have been. Um, If you're counting, uh, this is week number 17 that we've been in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are nearing the end. Um, As we get closer to the end of the uh, book, you can see that there's not many many pages left. I got one more in my Bible, Um, and and so we are going to be wrapping this up in the next couple of weeks and uh, getting ready to gear up um, as we head into the fall with a whole new new series, and and we'll be talking more about that in the weeks to come. Uh, But as we uh, get into God's Word uh, this morning, um, there's a, kind of a, an idea that I've sort of run into a few times, and um, and maybe um, you know maybe you've encountered this uh, yourself uh, either in your own heart or maybe um, in conversations with others. But um, you know I've, I've shared before that one of the ways I kind of paid my way through school was uh, by working construction uh, in the summers, and then um, after getting married, uh, Bree and I were um, in conversation with a church down in North Carolina. We were getting ready to move down there, and I kind of took this job with a contractor for. Um, for several months um, working on homes in the suburbs of Chicago. And so um, in doing that, I share all that to just say that the, uh, the guy that I was working with, my, my boss, had uh, like was a follower of Christ um, and, um, and was a believer and, and loved the Lord and, and had been following the Jesus for many years and, and um, was regularly in, in the Bible. But there was a topic that, that like, kind of was like a sticking point for him. It was something that he kind of brought up regularly. So we had many conversations about this. And I've encountered other people kind of with similar conversations. And, and, and I just bring it up because maybe, maybe this is your uh, sort of thought here this morning. The thing that he said uh, to me, and I'll never forget, like he was like, you know what, as I read the Bible... It almost feels like there's two different gods. Like I read the Bible and I read the Old Testament. That's the part at the beginning of the Bible, right? And it's called the Old Testament. And I read about that God in the Old Testament. And then I read about the New Testament, in the New Testament, I read about that God. And I see the picture of Jesus and read all about this. And it seems like there's two completely different gods of the Bible. And, and I have a hard time kind of reconciling uh, those two. He's like, I know that there is one God, but it seems like there's, there's two. And, uh, and, and he's like, you know, I think the conclusion for him was, I'd like to think more about the God of the New Testament than the God of the Old Testament. And the reality, what we have to do, the kind of the picture I want to kind of put before us this morning as we get ready to head into um, this passage of Scripture is that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And he didn't, like, change. Um, see, God's not like you or I. He doesn't have, like, a bad day. Um, he doesn't, uh, there's no bad side, like wrong side of the bed for God. Um, he doesn't, you know, kind of wake up with the grumps or, you know, do anything. Like, like he is unchanging. That's what scripture says. He's unchanging. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, he's the God we just sang about it. Uh, the God of a thousand generations, right? And so as we talk about God, we're like, man, he, he's, he's not a different God, still the same God. But why does it look like the interaction, why the experience is so unique or so different. And what I want to tell you this morning is that that is God. That, that is God. The God of the Old Testament is the God that we sang to just a minute ago. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He has not changed. Um, the way that the people experienced him, though, maybe looked a little bit 
different. We're going to kind of get into that this morning as we um, look at this uh, passage. Uh, The title this morning of the sermon, I've called it just Two Mountains, because what we're going to see this morning is that there's two different mountains that the people of God have come to, but the experience at the foot of each of those mountains is very, very different. And the God that we're talking about, the God that we're singing to and, and, and worshiping here this morning is the God over both of those mountains. Let me read it. Let's just begin. Let's, let me read the first part of our, 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 our passage. We're in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. You can follow along in your copy of Scripture, or um, you can look at the screen uh, in front of you. It says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. Even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stone. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God and the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word than the blood of Abel. Before we go any further and, and look at God's word together, let me just pray that God would teach us now. Would you uh, pray with me as I do? God, we uh, approach your word this morning um, humbly, and uh, God, with attentive, uh, attentive hearts, uh, Lord, ears uh, that want to hear uh, from you. And God, I pray that you would teach us through, um, through your word here today. And uh, God, that we would not only um, hear, but that we would respond. God, that we would apply, that we would walk away changed uh, by what we've uh, heard and experienced here today. And so, God, we pray that you teach us um, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Two mountains that we see here in this uh, picture. Let's kind of look at these two mountains. The first one uh, doesn't have a name in our passage, but you don't have to do like a lot of jumps to sort of figure out which mountain is being referred to here. Right? It uses these pictures of, um, of something that cannot be touched, the blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest. But then it quotes this. It says, even if the order was given, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stone. That takes us right to where. We know exactly what mountain this was. Uh, the mountain that we're talking about here is Mount Sinai. That's the first mountain that we have. And Mount Sinai... Um, speaks to a very different kind of message than, uh, than, than, than does the second mountain, Mount Zion. Let me give you the point. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Uh, Mount Sinai uh, requires us to stay away. Mount Zion invites us to draw close. These were the two very different experiences that the people of God experienced um, kind of in an experience in this way. Um, Exodus 19 records for us the experience of what it would have been like to be at Mount Sinai. Um, The people of God were rescued uh, by God. The the Hebrews, the Israelites, were led out of uh, Egypt by Moses, and they were being led to a land that God had promised them. And so upon being kind of rescued, freed from captivity, uh, they were being led to uh, this new place, and God sort of like has a little welcoming party, like he introduces himself to them. Like they had certainly seen him and gotten to know him through the, uh, the, the plagues, the miracles that we call the, the, the 10 plagues, but now they're like going to encounter God in a new way. And he leads them to this mountain. It was Mount Sinai. 
And at the foot of the mountain, they were given some instructions. They had to wash their clothes. They had to bathe. They were to abstain from sexual relations for, so that they wouldn't be ceremonially unclean. And then for three days, they waited in anticipation of what God was going to do. And then in Exodus chapter 19, you don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read the experience of what happened there at the foot of Mount Sinai. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down to Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the, mount, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and, Mo, and Moses went up. What a picture, right? Like this is not the, often the picture that we think of when we think about God, but this was the encounter of God's people with God himself there. And what was happening was, I mean, it was like full of terror. Like that would have been scary to be there as a part. Like scary is not even come close, right? Like they were terrified. Like even Moses himself, what does it say there? It says, when Moses heard the voice of God and, and Moses saw everything, he says, I tremble with fear. That's how terrifying it was. You know, there was blazing fire, right? God came down like a fire. There was smoke going up. It was all this lightning and thunder. And then this sort of heavenly trumpet sound that was growing louder and louder and louder. Like, I know what it's like. I played trumpet growing up. Like, I know what a, like, my trumpet sounds like. I can't imagine what a heavenly trumpet, like, you know, that's, that's, that's a, <laughs> audible to the entire camp of the Israelites. And so they, they hear this sound. They see these, these sights. They're smelling it all. And, and then the order is given that do not touch that mountain. Why? If you do, like, you need to die. Not just you, but, but even any beast. Like, if any animal so much as touches the mountain, like your dog gets off the leash and runs up like needed to be stoned or, 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 or killed with an arrow from a distance because he's touched something that was holy, right? There's this whole kind of terror that was there. The ground shook. People were scared out of their mind. And the thing that Mount Zion was saying, here's the thing that I think is what, is what we see here, this picture of distance, Right? Like, you stay right there. Don't come any closer, right? Like, they set a bound. Like, they're like, we, we cannot go past this point. Like, we got to stay away from this. Why? Because the presence and the holiness of God was, was, was coming down in a way that had not been seen. And they, they knew that they were not able to be there. He had said that. He had expressed that. He had shown them that. And there was this understanding of the holiness and might of God in that place. Notice what it says. What did it say in verse 18? It says, you have not come to what may not be touched. So he's telling the people, remember, the context is, is so helpful. The author here is writing to discouraged followers of Jesus who were tempted to walk away from their faith. One of the ways that they were walking away was by turning back to that old covenant, the old law, the old way that they had lived. And what he's reminding them is, do you want, really want to go back? Like so many times, right? I've like, man, if God would just speak to me. It's like, they heard him speak. And they were like, enough, enough of that. Don't, <laughs> let's not do that again, right? It was so deafening, so terrifying to hear God speak. And so a very different experience. Stay away, keep your distance, right there, no further. 
And he's like, that's not where we've come. We haven't come to this place. Where have we come? He says, you have come, where? To Mount Zion. So the first mountain, Mount Sinai. Second mountain, Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is like a physical place. Mount Zion was the place that was uh, under the control of the Jebusites, and David warred against them and, and won uh, control of this mountain. And that's the place that he established his home, and eventually the temple was built. Like, this is where the city of God, Jerusalem, was established. And what it's saying here is he's saying, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, Mount Zion is used throughout Scripture. If you read Mount Zion in like the Psalms, it talks about Mount Zion a lot. You're going to see it in other places. There was two sort of things that came to mind because it was all sort of synonymous. When you read Mount Zion, you think about Jerusalem, the city of God. But more than that, you think about the presence of God. Like Jerusalem was where the temple was, and that's where God was. God was at his temple. And so Mount Zion is like kind of synonymous for the presence and the, um, the proximity of God himself. That's where it was. And so, but look at this. It says, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That word heavenly is super helpful for us. So it's not just speaking about the physical place of Jerusalem. I've been there. It's a super like rad city. Like I like Jerusalem. I, I like old cities and, and there's so much that are there, like that's happened there. Like it's a really great city to, to kind of be in, but that's not talking about that. It's talking about a heavenly place. It's talking about a place that exists for eternity. It's the place of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so this is something, this is a spiritual place. It's an eternal place. And he's like, this is the place to which you have come. So what do we find when we come to this city? Uh, well, we find that it is not just a earthly city. It is the city of God. There's other places that talk about this. Uh, Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, a lot of times if you're getting to know somebody, you say, hey, what do you do? Where are you from, right? And we're like, oh, I'm from Madison. I'm from Fitchburg, from Middleton, from Verona. You know, like we, we speak about like where we're kind of from, but your citizenship, your citizenship, you're not a Wisconsin resident you're not a U.S. citizen. You're not an uh, inhabitant of the planet Earth. As much as if you are in Christ, you belong to a heavenly city. That is where your true and real residence is. This heavenly city of Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is heavenly Jerusalem. So it says, you come here to this, the city of the living God, this heavenly Jerusalem. What do we find there in the city when we come? Well, look at this. Let's look at this description. This is what we find in the city of God. It's innumerable angels in festal gathering. So like, like sand on the seashore, right? Like you can't count it. So many angels. And what are they doing? They are partying, right? That's kind of the expression here. Like this holy, like joyous celebration is happening here. Festal gathering is actually, it's a really unique word. It's not used. I don't know if it's used anywhere else in the New Testament, but we see it in secular literature. And what it was, was like a, it was a, a party. It was a, a joyous occasion. And so they are celebrating. They are rejoicing. What are they rejoicing? Well, they're rejoicing in the presence and the power of God. And so there's the innumerable angels that are rejoicing. In addition to that, it says there in verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That sounds like pretty... Um, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty good title. Like, what is that all about? Well, there's only one people that are talked about as enrolled in heaven. 
those, are, those that are in Christ, it says that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what's it talking about there? It's talking about all the saints, the assembly of the firstborn. It's like in God's family, um, you know, the firstborn always gets, especially in this day, got special privileges, right? Uh, hands up if you are a uh, firstborn, firstborn, yeah? Okay, nice. Not such a great time to be born as a firstborn. There's not much that you get other than like more responsibility, right? Right? Like your, your, uh, your parents were way more, um, <laughs> had way more uh, wealth and, uh, and, and, and kind of things that they could do for your like younger siblings, right? Like you go and you're like, man, we never had any of this stuff. Like, I, uh, like <laughs> there's a comedian I heard, he like jokes, he's like, I showed up and like, you know, I don't even think I'm supposed to be here yet, right? Like, and so um, there's, there's kind of that idea. But if you were, um, you know, like born before, like, Everyone else, I'm assuming, is not firstborn, right? I'm just simple deduction there. And so you guys are like, it's good that you're born now because um, there's, there's not special privilege. If you would have been born then, your, your older, older sibling would have gotten double portion, right? But in God's family, there isn't this kind of distinction. It's like you're all getting double portion, right? The assembly of the firstborn, that's all who are in Christ and enrolled in heaven, whose name is in the Lamb's book of life. So all the saints are gathered here in this place. And who else is there? God himself the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And not just God, but we have God as Jesus, right? We, we, we believe in one God existing in three persons. And so Jesus, who is Jesus? He's the mediator of the new covenant. And so we find there God himself. We see Jesus, the son of God, seated on the throne, right? God judging over all, Jesus there with him. So we're gonna experience that, not just that, It says that you have come. That's the perfect tense. That means that that's not a future thing. This is a present thing. It's a present perfect. Like it's already happening. Like we have been invited into this like today, like right now. This isn't something that awaits us in the future. This is something that's happening right now. Like as we were just singing here in this place, we're a part of that. Like we are, we are, we've come to this. And what else do we find there? Well, we find something even greater. Look at this, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, the blood of Abel, if you, if you know Scripture, the very first parents, very first people uh, that were made is Adam and Eve. Well, they had two kids. Um, they had many more, but we read about the first two were Cain and Abel. Right? Abel was um, the secondborn, Cain being the firstborn. And Cain uh, was the first person born. He was also the first murderer. He took the life of his brother. He was jealous. And so he killed him in a field. And, and so what does the blood of Abel speak? What's the word that the blood of Abel speaks? Well, it speaks for retribution. It speaks for judgment. It speaks for punishment for Cain, who took his life. The blood of, it says, like, I hear the, your brother's blood, like, crawling out from the field is, is, is essentially what God said to Cain. He's like, I can hear. And so there's this call for, for judgment. But what does it say? It says, we have not come to the blood of Abel, we've come to the sprinkled blood. That's a reference to Jesus' blood shed, then sprinkled on that mercy seat. What does the blood of Jesus speak? Well, it speaks a better word. What's the better word that Jesus' blood speaks? It speaks of forgiveness. It speaks of reconciliation. It speaks of peace. And so in heaven, we find the angels, the saints, Jesus, and the forgiveness that he offers. And he says, listen, you are not standing at the, mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai, terrified for your life, earth shaking, thunder like rattling, smoke and fire. You are in this heavenly city. You have come to a heavenly city and you are 
worshiping the living God. What an incredible picture that we get to see. And here's the thing that we have to remember. I said at the beginning, right, the, the, the indication or kind of the, the place our heart goes, we're like, well, that's two different gods, right? Like the God that was there on Mount Sinai is a different God than was at Mount Zion. But that's just simply not true. It's the same God. The difference was the experience of the people, right? Like Zion speaks to joy and life. Sinai was full of darkness, gloom, terror. Sinai speaks about distance, right? Stay away, regulation. Zion invites relationship, invitation is present. Sinai was about a warning. Zion is about this invitation. And so it says here that we do not come to this other mountain, but instead we come to Mount Zion. You know the word that's used there in verse 22? It says, you have come. That word is the same word that we've encountered several other times throughout this verse. What it means is, is that to draw close, to draw near, right? This close proximity is what's happening there. That's what's going on here is that we have come close to God. It's the invitation to draw near. And this is a theme. I mean, we, we've titled this, um, this series, Jesus is Better. I think another title that would have totally worked is Draw Near. Right? This reminder that God is not distant and out there, but he is inviting you close because we've seen this. Let me show it to you. You can look at the screen. I'll, I'll, we'll put some verses up there for you. But Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us with confidence, what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, what? Draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would what, draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so let me ask you, church, you don't have to answer out loud, just kind of answer in your head, like what was the difference same God, two different mountains. What was the difference in the experience? I would say that the difference in the experience has everything to do with the work of Jesus, right? It was Jesus. Before Jesus is around, then it was all about the distance and all about the proximity. Why? Because the people were unholy. They were sinful. They were separated. They were, they were cut off from the relationship with God. After Jesus, a, may, a way was made. There was a bridge that was formed. There was a path that was made. And the people were able to come close. Not only were they able to come close, but God was inviting. And see, here's the reality is I think so many times we think about God. Let me just ask you this. How do you picture, like, which mountain do you feel like you're at when you think about God? Because I think sometimes our churches, and this is like, I think true in like all sorts of different kinds of churches, but this has happened so many times, right? I think so many times the way that we've done church, like I've been in some churches that are, are, are cold and stale and, and, and so like, you know, ornate or, or built up. And what I feel in that is not this awe and greatness and closeness of God. I feel like he is far off and distant and, and somewhere else, right? Like I think some of us, we think that. We think that God is somewhere out there. But the truth of what scripture says is this, church, here's the good news for you this morning, is that God is not somewhere out there. He's right here. Like he is in this room with us. It says that he indwells those who are in him, 
right? He sends his spirit and he, he indwells us. He is here with us. And so he's not somewhere out there. He is close. And so I just want to ask you, like the starting place, I think for our hearts is which mountain do you feel like you're standing at the foot of? He says, you have not come to Mount, si- Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. You've been invited to draw close. Do you feel, do you understand, do you experience the nearness and closeness of God? He desires you to be close to him. He's invited you in toward him, and he's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. If you feel like God is distant, it might be because you've never received that gift of forgiveness that comes in Christ Jesus. The way was made by his blood. Jesus' blood spilled, shed for you on the cross. And so if you feel like God is distant, he is. Apart from Jesus, there is no proximity. There is no closeness. Why? Because we have been separated from a holy God. But it says that that sprinkled blood makes us clean in God's eyes. It is as if we have never sinned. It is applied. Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, his holiness is applied to our account. And so we are invited then, because of what Christ has done, we're brought into that. So the first thing I think these two mountains makes us question is, how do we picture God? What do we, how do we experience God? The second question that I think then we should, our minds should go to is then, how are we presenting him to others? Right? Like, how are, what is the God that you're sharing with others, that you're calling others to? Because I think, if I, if I kind of speak generally about the church today, I think the church today is inviting people to uh, something that maybe doesn't represent this nearness, right? Like, I think sometimes what the church is, seems to be inviting people to is like, hey, why don't you come to church and join our fight, right? Like, there's a battle that's raging, and it's us versus them, and so why don't you come in, be on our side, be on our team, it's us against the world. And let me just tell you, I got to travel a little bit. I shared I was like in different parts of our country. I was in Idaho, I was in Texas. I got to interact with some different people as I'm having some conversations. Not that these people don't exist here. Um, that's not my point. My point is I just like, I was in this conversation and one of the people that they heard, they're like, oh, you're in Madison. Wow. Like, what's it like, like trying to live for Jesus there? And I'm like, the same as everywhere. They're like, yeah, but like, you're kind of like in it there, aren't you? And I'm like, what do you mean in what? Like the world? Like next to people? Yes, yes. Like, isn't that what we're called to do? Like, isn't that, like, but their idea was like the reason that they were living in, in, in the kind of rural secluded part is they wanted nothing to do with any of that. And so the invitation was, the invitation was that like, if you're going to join and follow my God, then that, that's like, you're part of a fight now. You're part of this like us, them kind of thing. But what did Jesus come? Why did he come? He came to save those who were lost and dying. He came for the world. And so we are not to be of the world, but we are to be in it. Like that is what he has called us to do. And so we are not part of, we're not calling people to a fight. Another thing that I think the church has kind of gotten off on is like, instead of calling God, or people to a, 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 a presence with God himself, we're calling people to like a political movement or a political party or, or something like that. Like, are you seeing this? Like, is this happening around us, right? Like, like, how, like the church is growing more and more. I'm speaking generally now. The church is growing more and more political. Listen, we are not a political movement or a political bar- body. We are involved in our government and the life that we live in, certainly, right? And we bring our biblical values to it. But we are not, like, just a political party in that. We are part of the citizenship of heaven, And so we're not inviting people to some political ideology. And I think that's kind of where I'm seeing so many churches sort of move to. Like, if you're going to be part of this, then you're going to be part of this, right? What's another thing? 
I think sometimes like church gets relegated to just like another way to connect to a club or kind of a community, right? It's like not that different. Like we just play decidedly less golf, although there's plenty that love golf too, right? Like it's like kind of like a country club, just like decidedly less golf happening. Right? It's like it's like you know same kind of community that's happening at, at the gym or or in your book club or whatever, but it's just kind of like you know we've got our thing, and so it's kind of just this group that you're sort of a part of. Here's the thing. I say all that to just say this, is that if you understand who God is, like as you're inviting people, you're not inviting them to church. You're inviting them to know and experience and follow Jesus Christ. That's who we're calling people to. If you're here today, I hope you understand this. Like we're having step two right after this. Step two is not about being a part of our church. Certainly that's like a component of it, but I'm way more concerned that, that the church is helping you grow in your relationship and, and, and following of Jesus, right? Like, that's what we're trying to, that's the next step we're trying to take. The next step with Jesus, not so much with the church. And so that is what we need to be about, church. And if we miss that, if we present God as something kind of far off or other, and how many times, though, does that get relegated to that? It feels like, well, you can't, you're not welcome here until you clean yourself up first, right? Stay away, Keep your distance. Don't come near. The opposite is true. It's like, no, come near, and Jesus will save. Jesus will rescue. Jesus will clean you up. You don't have to clean yourself up first. Come just the way that you are, and his blood will be applied to your sinful, dirty hearts. That is the word that's being spoken by the sprinkled blood. That's what's happening here, church. And so two mountains, but it's the same God. The same God is over both. The experience is different. The difference is Jesus. The work that Christ has done applied to our hearts makes all the difference in the way that we experience God. If God sees distant, seek Jesus and he will open a way. So then it's like, okay, well, I'm in, right? Like I wanna draw close. How do I do that? That's where he goes next. Like what does it look like to draw close? I think we kind of see it in two ways. Let me read the text and I'll give you the, the points. You can write it down. It says this, see that you not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have not been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. How do we draw close to God? Well, there's several ways we can do it, but the two that are kind of being expressed right here in this passage is this. We, we draw close to God through obedience and through worship. Two responses that we see the people of God, the people at the Mount Zion being called to. Right? He says, you have come to this type of mountain. You've come to this living city. So therefore, first, obedience. You see, see too that you do not refuse him who is speaking. To refuse him who is speaking is to like, you know, close your ears, reject it. You know, I'm not doing that, right? He says, but, but, but listen, how much more? He's like, if the people at Mount Sinai refused him when they warned him here on earth, how much more will we, how much less will we escape if we reject him who's saying it from heaven? Like God gave his warning right there at Mount Sinai. And if the people were to reject it and to walk up and be like, I don't care what you say, I'm touching that mountain, right? It didn't go well for them. How much more so of the word spoken? God is still speaking. Like he has spoken through his word and he is still speaking through it. It's living and active. 
And so if we reject, if we refuse him who is speaking, then how much more? And what does that mean? That is obedience, obedience. Listen, listen. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called to, you have entered into a life of obedience. Like God has said some things and he wants us to do some things as a result. And we get this backwards, right? Like we think that obedience earns us that favor, gets us that presence with God. And that's, I think, sometimes, sadly, what is taught is that if you obey, then you will be saved. But the opposite is true, right? See, I believe those people at Mount Sinai, they, they saw the terror and might and holiness of God, and so they obeyed in that place, hoping that, they, that this, this terrifying, um, fearful God would love them, Right? I think the people at Mount Zion understand what is true, that God loves them, and as a result, therefore, they obey. Said another way, this is like, obedience does not save you, but if you are saved, you will obey, right? Like, sanctification is not the entrance or sort of the, the, the ticket into uh, salvation, but salvation leads to sanctification. Save people, obey, and love to obey. And I think obedience and following the way of the Lord, like, following his precepts is like, such a fundamental basic truth, yet it has fallen on such tough times, right? Like we in our hearts are inclined. I've shared this many times before. Like, I don't know, like I see this in my kids. I saw it when I was like, not even when I'm little, like the other day, I see a button. It says, don't press. I was like, all I want to do is press that button. It's like, you tell me not to do something. Now I want to do it. I want to do it even more. We were walking into a restaurant the other day. Our youngest, Levi, there's like this little like padlock thing that was sitting on the, he starts like just pressing buttons. I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're doing. Are you like arming a bomb or something? Like you have no clue what those buttons do. Like did you just call like France or something? Like what are you doing? Like you don't know. And he's just like, he sees buttons. He wants to touch it, right? We do this. I use kind of silly illustrations to say like our hearts love to do things that they're not supposed to. We are inclined toward this. But yet, listen, this is the way that we draw. You want to, like does God feel distant? It's because we're not being obedient to his words. He's told us exactly how we draw close to him. And again, we don't draw close to earn his love because he's loved us. We then draw close as a response. Very different, very different. If you walk away with nothing else today, if you understand that truth, that our obedience does not earn God's love because God's loved us, it requires that we obey him as a result. God has done so much for us and we respond to him in obedience. And then also through worship. What is worship? Well, we see worship is responding to God in this way. I kind of skipped over these verses. I didn't mean to. You know, one of the reasons that we, if I can go back to obedience for just a second, is because this is the place where um, I think things of value are formed, right? Where, where our actions really matter. What's this whole thing about the shaking, right? He says that he shook the earth, but he's not only going to shake the earth, someday he's going to shake the heavens once more. And then when he shakes the heavens, like the things of earth and the things of the heavens will be uh, destroyed, obliterated, taken away. It says removed all things and only that which cannot be shaken will remain. What does that mean? It means that his kingdom is unshakable. His kingdom will not go away. And so the things that we do done in obedience to him, like that are for his kingdom are the things that will truly last. Listen, if I could kind of like speak to that for one more second. I think sometimes we get distracted. Our hearts get inclined towards all sorts of other things, right? Like we, we pour ourselves into so many other things. Um, let me give an example. Uh, I think like right now it's super, you know, 
um, popular, uh, you know, has been for a long time, but it just feels like it because there's like, you know, not only are there shows devoted to DIY, there's entire networks now, right? Like devoted to DIY. Like, you know, this project's kind of ficking up your house, making it look good, like that sort of thing. So like you can, like, like hear me out on this. Like, it is so easy to kind of get all on that bandwagon, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like, fix up my house. I'm going to, like, I, I like love JoJo, and so I'm going to put some shiplap everywhere, and I'm going to get that shiplap up there and kind of do all that, and I got to step back, and you're like, man, now I got the mudroom of my dreams, right? And you're like, but here's the thing. It is not wrong to DIY your house, like, to your little content. Like, you can do that all you want. You can shiplap as much as you desire to do. Where it's wrong or where it kind of crosses a line is where that is where your joy, that is where your contentment, that is like what you're living for. And substitute DIY, shiplap, all that with whatever it is, fill in the blank with whatever it is. Our hearts are so easily inclined toward other things that don't ultimately matter past this life, right? Like the things that are eternal are the things that are a part of his heavenly kingdom. And so I'm not saying it's wrong to fix up your mudroom. You can do that, okay? You're like, well, pastor said like the whole place is just gonna you know, get shaken and fall apart, so what's the point? No, that's not what I'm saying, right? Like, Jesus was a carpenter. I'm sure he would like, love to see your mudroom, okay? And, and, and be all about that. The, the difference is, is that that is not where we base all of our joy, all of our contentment, like who we are. It's not. It's just not. It's not in our hobbies. It's not in our relationships. It's not in anything that's temporal or here. Those things are not bad. Like steward what God's given you well. Do it. Like, that's awesome. Like, enjoy the skills and hobbies and different opportunities that God has given you. That's great. He wants you to. But don't pour into it to the place that that is the kingdom that you are investing in. It's only so good in so much as understanding that all of that is going to fall apart. All that's going to go away. Only that which is part of his kingdom is going to remain. So why are we obedient? Because those are the things that matter. That's the things that he's called us to. Okay, now we can talk about worship. And we'll close with this. Verse 28 and 29 says this, therefore, let us be grateful. What are we grateful for? Well, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you know that the kingdom of God is not something that we establish or we get or like that we build up? It's something that we receive. It's a gift that we're given. And so why are we grateful? Well, we're grateful because God has given us something that is like beyond this planet, this life, this, this time. And therefore, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Whenever I read a word like that, I'm like, well, if there's acceptable worship, that means there's unacceptable worship. What does unacceptable worship look like? Well, I know none of you, I, don't, I look around, I don't see any like, kind of goats or sheep like, in tow with you. I don't think any of you have like, little doves in your purse or, or something like that that you're hoping to sacrifice later. Right? For a long time, that is how the people of God, by the instruction of God, worshiped God. They brought animals to sacrifice Blood was spilled. And God received that not because of the fact that it was like the animal's blood, but looking forward to the work that Christ was. But what did he even say in that? He's like, it's not about the sacrifices. What was it about? It was about the heart of the person who's offering it. So again, none of you came today, unacceptable worship, none of you came. Like, that would be unacceptable. Like, if you bring me a sheep afterwards and we're gonna, like, I got nothing for you, okay? Like, that's not, we're not doing anything with that. So that's unacceptable. But what about, like, our worship now? What does that look like? Well, oftentimes when we think about worship, we think about singing. So it is totally possible to come in here and to make a noise with your mouth, right? To sing words, to sing songs. You can even close your eyes. You can even lift your head, raise your hands and worship may not be happening at all. You know that's possible? 
That would be unacceptable worship. Why? What's the difference? What makes it unacceptable or acceptable? It's what's happening in here. If your heart is not inclined toward the Lord, if you're not responding to him, if you're just kind of experiencing a moment and you're kind of getting caught up in what we're doing here, that is not what God is after. He's like, I want you thinking about me, responding to me, expressing who I am, like echoing back the truth that I've told you in my word. Like that's what acceptable worship is. It's a heart that's inclined to him. What does it say here? It says, thus, let us therefore be grateful and thus offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? It's worship with reverence and with awe. What is that? That's a right response to God and his character his holiness, his love, his justice. It's an amazement at who he is. And so listen, I'm guilty of it as much as you, I'm sure you are, that sometimes we come into a place like this, we go through the motions, but we don't actually respond to God for who he is. And he's saying, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Again, I said, oftentimes we think of worship as singing, but it's not that, just that. It is that, but it's more, so much more. You can worship God in your cubicle tomorrow morning. Like you can worship God at your place of employment. Students, school starting up soon. When you like start hitting those books, you can worship God in the way that you study. Like the way that you raise your kids, the way that you're parenting them at the park or, 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 or you know, in the yard or whatever. Like we can worship God at all times. It is such an incredible truth, but it's a right response to God in who he is with reverence and awe. And then the reminder here is verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. This is for sure a verse that was finished in the hearts and minds of the uh, Hebrews as they heard this, right? The, the, the recipients of this letter know what ha- comes next. This is an Old Testament reference. It goes on to say that God is a consuming fire because he is a jealous God. Do you that God is jealous for his own glory? And that's the best and most right thing that he can be? Because he is the greatest being that exists, he is worthy of the most amount of glory, the most amount of worship. And so he is jealous for his own glory. And it's right and good and helpful for us that he is. So we don't often think about this aspect of God, but God is jealous for your worship. When he sees you worshiping other things, right? Our hearts inclined toward other things. He's like, no, no, that's for me. That should be for me. I should be your highest and best. I should be your greatest thought. I should be where your contentment and where your faith and where your hope lies. It's in me. He's a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. So therefore, we offer to God worship that is filled with reverence and awe, knowing that God is worthy of our worship and he is jealous for it. Church, as we wrap up and kind of conclude here, I just want to say this, that our God um, is a God that is worthy of our praise, that's worthy of our worship. And when we come into this place and we desire to draw near to him, that it should be reflective of this God that he is. You know, we talked about the the party, right? The, The joyous response that the angels and the saints have. That's why so many times our, our services, we want them to be marked by joy. That doesn't mean there's not a time for lament, because there certainly is. It doesn't mean there's not a time for sorrow, because there certainly is. Quiet reflection, of course. We have all of that as part of it. But even in those times, there's still this grounding, this, this joy that is present. Why? Because we have not come to the mountain of fear and trembling and doom and gloom. We have come to the mountain where we get to see God 
in the fullness of who he is. But remember, he is the God of both mountains. He is a God that is holy and just and righteous, but he's a God who's loving and caring and gracious, and he has sent his son Christ that we might receive and know him fully, that his holiness would be met in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and that he would change and draw us into him. So if God feels distant, let me tell you this, that he is inviting you to be close. The way we do that is by a right response, following his precepts, following his laws, responding to him, and then worshiping him as the God that he is. Let's pray and do that together. God, we give you praise and thanks for who you are. And God, we worship you in the glory of your, um, God, just your majesty. You are king. God, you are ruler. God, you are over and above all things. And God, how, <laughs> how foolish it is, Lord, when we become distracted or discouraged by such temporal things, Lord, that steal our attention, God, that steal our uh, affection. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see a better picture of your nearness, God, your closeness, not just today, but every day of the week. God, you're not just with us here in this place. You're with us in our homes. God, you're with us in the situations that we encounter throughout our days. And God, we wanna live with hearts full of worship. We're in right response to you. And so, Lord, would you do this? Would you stir this up in us? God, we ask that you would, um, that you would work this. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.